This morning we're in Revelation chapter 20. If you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. And Wednesday night we're looking in depth in this same chapter, so invite you back on Wednesday night as well. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful. We're, we're thankful to be in your house, to be your sons, your daughters, to be adopted by you. We thank you that you have a plan, that you have a purpose, that Jesus, you're going to return. And we look forward to that. Would you bring clarity in this, this chapter? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you stamp eternity on our eyes? So God, we love you and we thank you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know, some of you don't know, uh, my dad really struggles with his health. Uh, he has Parkinson's disease and uh, he's 69, he'll be 70 uh, in March and, and Parkinson's just makes his life really difficult uh, and his, his daily life is, is a challenge and my mom that just loves him and serves him and cares for him and this week I was able to spend some time with them in, in South uh, Denver and it's really cherished time. It's really uh, hard but good and, and really fills my heart with joy to, to spend uh, time uh, with him. And he's reflecting on his life and reflecting on God's goodness and God's faithfulness in his life, even in the midst of his challenges. And as he gets older and I get older, more and more I, I value that time and trying to, to see things through his perspective to see things through, uh, you know, what's his lens now being close to his 70th uh, birthday. And as we study this section of scripture, we get a picture of eternity. And it's hard for us to really wrap our minds around eternity, but the more that we can have a lens of eternity, that we can have this perspective of eternity, that Revelation chapter 20 would impact the way that we live our lives today, that would impact the way that we, we see uh, Jesus. And so that's the prayer this morning, is that we would view our lives through the perspective or lens of eternity. What we're going to be covering this morning is a thousand-year reign of Christ. It's called the millennial reign of Christ. The second coming of Jesus has happened in chapter 19. And then the first thing that he sets up is this thousand-year reign of Christ. It's a literal reign of Christ here on the earth. And so the question is, who's living in the millennial reign? There's some that have lived through the tribulation period that haven't passed away, and those are the ones that are living in the millennial reign. Believers, those that have already died and are with the Lord, which, which will be us, we get to come with Christ and rule and reign with Christ. There's several views on the millennial kingdom, and I want to bring them up briefly because I think at some point, or you already have, you've maybe come in contact with some of, of these teachings. There's one view that's called post-millennialism, and it's this idea that we as the church bring in the millennial kingdom, and then Christ doesn't return till after the millennial reign. So you'll hear in teaching and in worship this idea of the church through the gospel, kind of arriving to a place where then we're able to bring in the millennial reign of Christ. I don't know about you, but uh, I wouldn't put that much stock in the church. Like, when are we going to get our act together well enough to bring in this millennial reign? But even more importantly, it's, it's not biblical. It doesn't line up with scripture. When you read Revelation 
19 and 20, it's really clear that Christ returns and he's the one that brings in the millennial reign. Another view is an amillennial view, which simply denies the literal thousand-year reign of Christ. People read this chapter and they say it's figurative. It doesn't speak of a literal thousand years. But again, when we take God's word at, at face value, it seems very clear that it is a thousand-year reign of Christ. So the third view then is premillennial, meaning that Christ comes before the millennium and establish this thousand-year reign of Christ. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So here comes an angel, and he has a great chain in his hand, and he's coming to the bottomless pit. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Note that it's just a rank-and-file angel. It's not even Michael the archangel. It's just an average angel that gets assignment from God, has the authority from the Lord, and there's not this battle that takes place between God and Satan. The angel's able to take Satan and throw him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So here's the first lesson this morning as we look through the lens of eternity is that God is the ultimate authority. This dates me a whole, whole lot, and it's going to date you too, but anybody ever listen to Carmen? Old Christian music artists? Like, you don't want to raise your hand, right? Well, when I was in middle school, we, I went to a Christian school, and we did this play of one of Carmen's songs where there's this battle between Jesus and Satan. And the song's kind of like, I don't know who's going to win. Like, oh man, it, it just seems like Jesus is going to lose. And, and then Jesus is crucified and, and he's buried and then he raises from the dead. And it's like the underdog comes back and somehow is able to, to beat Satan. And that's not really the accurate picture that we see from, from scripture. Like Satan's no match for God. <laughs> I hope we understand that. Like he's a fallen angel and he's not a threat to God. And when it's time for Satan to be put into this bottomless pit. There, there's no conflict there. It's simply that this angel is able to, to chain him up in this bottomless pit for a thousand years. We have a description of Satan here. He's a dragon, and this speaks of his nature, that he brings destruction, that he comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. He's called the serpent of old. The serpent speaks of deception. He's a deceiver through lies. Devil literally means slanderer. Satan, his, the name Satan means adversary. So there is the reality of who Satan is, but God is the ultimate authority. And verse 3, And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. This is interesting. Why would God put Satan in a bottomless pit for a thousand years and then release him at the end of this thousand year period. Why wouldn't God just at this point throw Satan into the lake of fire and, and be done with it? 
Why does Satan get a chance to to come back out after a thousand years? And it's our, our second lesson is that God values an authentic relationship. God gives us the freedom to choose. We find this even in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. God places the tree of life, but next to the tree of life is the knowledge of good and evil. They have a choice to make. Adam and Eve really had it good. There was no mother-in-laws and no old boyfriends, right? They didn't have to deal with that. It was, it was Adam and it was Eve. No sin. God comes to them in the cool of the day. And they're hanging out with the Lord in that face-to-face fellowship. But God says, I want to give you a choice. You can choose to love me. You can choose to obey me. You can choose to disobey me. I think one of the most scary things for me as a parent is the fact that all of my four kids have the freedom to choose, right? They, they get to make their, their own choices, and as a parent, we love and we guide, but, but ultimately as they get into adulthood, the way that God's designed it is they get to choose, right? And I'm sure my parents felt the same way. And God, he values us enough and, or a better way to put this is he longs for a loving relationship to the point where he gives us the opportunity to choose. If there's no choice, what kind of authentic relationship is it? So at the end of the thousand years, those that live through this millennial period, they get to choose, I get to stay with Christ or I get to choose uh, Satan. If you want to study this more, Isaiah 65 describes this time of this thousand years where Christ is ruling and and reigning, it's a time where there's tremendous peace. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Have you ever been to the wolf exhibit here in Colorado up outside of Woodland Park? And we're reintroducing wolves in Colorado and throughout the West. And imagine you just see a a wolf hanging out with a lamb. That speaks of the peace that is going to take place. There's not going to be this hostility even in uh, the animal kingdom. There's a time of prosperity. Isaiah 65 describes that as well. Micah 4.4 says, Every man will abide under his own vine. In verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgments were committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for their word of God who had not worshipped the beast of his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Thrones set up of of ruling and reigning with Christ. Believers, us, those who have lived, died, are resurrected unto eternal life, and we return with Christ and rule and reign with Christ. The, The rapture of the church happening. Prior to the tribulation, those believers returning with Christ. Also, those that have been beheaded during the time of the tribulation. Those that were martyred that didn't compromise. That didn't worship the Antichrist. That didn't take uh, the mark of the beast. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Imagine what this is going to be like to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. You know, sometimes I, I think we think of heaven as being extremely boring. We're created in God's image, 
and God is a creator. So eternity is not going to be the absence of work, but it's going to be redeemed work. We're going to have the opportunity to create. We're going to have the opportunity to worship the Lord, have the opportunity to do those things that he's designed for us. Isn't it fun as, as families to, to work together? I, I enjoy that with Amber and the kids. If, if we're doing a project together or Wyatt and I are out working in the garage uh, together. It could be even as simple as, as cleaning the garage together. And we get to rule and reign with Christ. So we're doing it with Christ, and we're doing it together, and he's going to have assignments for us during this thousand-year reign. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first uh, resurrection. So believers are resurrected to be part of ruling and reigning during this thousand years. But unbelievers, those that have rejected Christ as their Savior, they're not resurrected till the end of the millennial reign and will face the great great white throne judgment that we'll see in the next uh, few verses. So I want to try to be clear, like, who's a part of the millennium? Those who have lived through the tribulation— They're the ones that are alive during the millennial reign. Believers that are resurrected are ruling and reigning with Christ. But then unbelievers who have already passed away are not resurrected until the end of the thousand years. Clear as mud? (laughs) Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years years. Blessed and holy who's part of the first resurrection. So those who are in Christ, who are raised unto everlasting life, it's blessed to be part of that first resurrection because the second death is going to have no power over you. So, So what's the second death? Well, the first death is to die physically. We all have our our death here of these physical bodies, but then the second death is for those that don't know Christ as their Savior, it's their spiritual death. As they stand before God at the great white throne judgment, accountable before God based on their works, and are separated from God for all of eternity. And we're encouraged here that we're blessed if we're part of the first resurrection. So as we think about eternity, we think about the lens of eternity, the third lesson is as believers, we have a lot to look forward to. As believers, we have a lot to look forward to. God's word tells you this morning that if you're in Christ, you're part of this first resurrection and you're blessed. And you might say, well, I don't feel very blessed. Do you know the kind of marriage that I'm in? Do you know I'm single and it's, it's difficult and I long to, to be married? Do you know that this is what's going on with my kids? This is the kind of job that I have. These are the health challenges that I face. I'm in chronic pain. How is it that that I'm blessed? We need to lift our eyes and think of it in terms of eternity. You're going to heaven. You're not going to hell. God, God has saved us from hell and he's allowed us to go to heaven. This is the worst that this life is ever gonna get for us as believers. And God offers us a joy that's based on eternity. 
He, he offers us a joy that, that's based on heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, let not your heart be troubled because Republicans are in office. <laughs> let not your heart be troubled because Democrats are, are in office. Don't let your heart be troubled because the stock market's doing really well. Don't let your heart be troubled because property values are, are up. No. He said, don't let your heart be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto to myself. This life is going to have ups and downs. This life is going to have, have challenges. I'm always trying to figure a way to engineer suffering out of my life. Do you ever do that? If I could just do this or do that, or, or maybe when we get to this season, there's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any difficulties or, or challenges. But the reality of it is, is that's an unrealistic expectation. In this life, you will have tribulation, Jesus told us. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So we lift our eyes higher beyond our circumstances and we go, I'm in Christ. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to get to rule and reign with Christ for, for a thousand years. And this thousand years is just the beginning. Then after that is a new heaven and, and a new earth. As believers, we've got so much to look forward to where we get to be the priests of God. We get to rule and reign with Christ. Verse 7 now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So now Satan is released and he's going out and he's deceiving the nations. People have the opportunity, or am I going to choose Christ or follow Satan, and some follow Satan, and the nations of the world are, are gathered together to make war against Christ. So this isn't just a, I'm, I'm neutral towards Christ, which is bad enough, but this is an absolute opposition to Christ. This is a, I want to destroy Christ. I, I can't stand God and, and the knowledge of, of who God is. There's a little bit of question that comes from Ezekiel 38 and 39, where we see Gog and Magog mentioned there as well. And is this what is being referred to in Revelation chapter 20? I think they're two different battles. The battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and this battle, because in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about the nations of the north coming and attacking Israel, where this does include Gog and Magog, which is modern-day Russia, but it also includes the rest of the world that they're coming together to battle uh, against the Lord. In verse 9, Then they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So they're coming against believers, saints, and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and God sends fire from heaven and devours them and destroys them. Here's the fourth lesson, and it's environment's not enough. Environment's not enough. Here they had the perfect environment with Christ ruling and reigning. Do you long for godly leadership? That longing for godly leadership 
is ultimately our desire for Jesus to be in charge here on this earth. You ever find yourself going, man, I wish there was better godly leadership in my family. Or man, it would be great if I had godly leadership for for a boss. Could you imagine what Colorado Springs would look like if Jesus were in charge? So there's this longing for for godly leadership, but it's ultimately a longing for for Jesus, for him to be in charge. And for this thousand years, people enjoy that. Jesus is literally ruling and reigning here on the earth. But what's so mind-blowing is at the end of it, there's some that choose Satan. There's some that are saying, man, I don't want Jesus. And yet they had that good environment. Because oftentimes we think, well, if my environment were different, then I'd be different. If I just would have grown up in a different family, or if I were in a, a different setting, then I would choose Christ and, and follow, follow Christ. And the encouraging thing is, is that the environment in and of itself can't save us. You can be in the greatest environment, but if you don't know Jesus, you're still, still not saved. But also, if you're in a really bad environment, that doesn't prevent you from coming to Jesus and having Jesus change and transform your life. Isn't that encouraging? Whatever type of families that we grew up in doesn't prevent us from experiencing the love of God and the forgiveness of God. Our sins and our mistakes and shortcomings as a parent doesn't seal the fate of our children that they'll never know Jesus. They have the opportunity to know Christ, believe in Christ, and and follow him. So this is a powerful lesson that environment in and of itself is not enough. We need Jesus. In verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So now Satan has his final judgment. He's cast into the lake of fire. The beast, this is the Antichrist and the false prophet, are already there. And they'll be tormented. Their punishment is is daily. Night and day, they're tormented forever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth, from whose face the earth and heaven will fled away. And there was found no place for them. I totally butchered that verse. Can I have a take? retake. (laughs) Let's, Let's do verse 11 again. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, for whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place uh, for them. This great white throne judgment is where unbelievers, those that have rejected Christ over the course of their lifetime, ultimately are going to stand before God. As you're thinking about trusting Christ as your Savior, if you don't know Christ uh, this morning, is come to know there will be a time where you will stand before the Lord. The Bible tells us that every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow and recognize that Jesus is Lord. And you might be saying, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to believe in Jesus. I I don't believe he existed. I think people just made him up. I've kind of got him in the Santa Claus category, well, from Scripture, you will be here. You, you'll be at this place where you're going to stand before the great white throne judgment, and there's really one thing 
that's going to separate us. And it's those that trust in Christ, that believe Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again. Through that simple but sincere faith in Christ, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And because of that, you're not judged by your works. You're judged by the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're robed in Christ's righteousness. We're justified. We're declared righteous. But if we choose to reject Christ and simply saying, I'm going to stand before God on my own merit, on my own works, then then God's going to open up another book, and it's the book of our our works. And very quickly, we're going to come to understand that we deserve this judgment from a holy God. So verse 12, And I saw the dead, the small, the great, standing before God, and books were opened. So nobody gets a pass on this. If they're small, they're great, they're they're standing before the Lord. Anywhere in between, and these books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. What a humbling thing. Man, I'd be so humbled if my actions and my attitudes were, were put up on these screens this morning. That'd be no fun to be humbled before you in that way. Imagine all of your actions and your thoughts being opened up before the Lord. And God holds us accountable for our actions, but also our attitudes. Jesus taught and said, if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder. If if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so very quickly, before a holy God, we come to understand our need for Jesus, our need for for Christ to die upon the cross. You may be thinking through and examining and and praying through, well, how do I get my name in the Lamb's book of life? Well, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But he also went on to say there in John 3, if you reject Christ, you're condemned already. So it's very clear. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's a lot of things that we examine in life, but the most important thing to examine is, do I know Christ is my Savior? Because your eternity, your eternity is determined by that decision. Verse 13 The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades were delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So this is after the millennial reign. Those that have rejected Christ as their Savior, they too are are raised up. Hades is a holding tank uh, for judgment, standing before the Lord at the great white throne judgment. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Those that aren't in the book of life, judged by their works, cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. The first death is the physical death. The second death is the spiritual death and an eternal separation from the Lord. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here's the fifth lesson as we look at the lens of eternity is that heaven and hell are very real. They're very real. As we read the scriptures, it's, it's clear heaven is, is real. It's clear that hell is real as well. 
oftentimes we fail to realize that we're all going to live eternally. The question is location. What do we say in real estate? Location, location, location. It's never more true in eternity. Like you will live for, for eternity. And this is really sobering because those that don't know Christ as their Savior, this is the best it's ever going to get. This life is the best that it's ever going to get. Think of someone who doesn't know Christ, that doesn't want to know Christ, and is thinking, I just want this life to end so I don't have to deal with this suffering. And they wake up to hell. They wake up to eternal torment from God. There's oftentimes many that really wrestle with this teaching in the scripture of eternal punishment. And think through a couple things with me when it comes to the existence of hell. One is we don't get the opportunity to rewrite God's word. Amen? So it may not suit our likes, but we don't get to go through this and go, I really like this part, but I don't like that part. And then that part about hell is just a little bit too harsh for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change that. This is not I Bible. It's the Holy Bible right? It's God's word. So, so we have to come to a place of going, you know, God's God. And then the second thing is, if there is no hell, it really undermines the work of Jesus Christ. If there's no eternal punishment, then why did Jesus have to come and die on the cross for, for our sins? What, what's the need of that? What's, what's the purpose of that? And the last thing is it really diminishes the reality of sin. It it diminishes how bad sin is. We have our view of sin, and then there's God's view of sin. And we don't understand how how hideous sin is, how sinful we really are. It's not unjust of God to say, look, here's your works, and here's my holiness. And you fell short in it and you chose to reject Christ through the course of of your life. And so you're eternally separated from from the Lord. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And please hear me, the heart of God is he doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't delight in pouring out punishment. He wants to pour out forgiveness, but he is just in, in doing so. So as we wrestle with this chapter, I think that there's a couple of applications for us. And the first is, as believers, there is so much to to look forward to. Don't get yourself in a place where you fail to see that someday Christ is going to return and he's going to rule and reign and you're going to get to be a part of that. And the interesting thing is God gives gracious rewards to us as believers. So it's worthwhile to live your life for the Lord because it's going to impact eternity. God's going to say, thank you for being faithful. Now here's your assignment in the millennial kingdom. Woo! That's pretty, pretty exciting. Heaven awaits us as, as believers. And that should fill our hearts with this tremendous amount of comfort, with this tremendous amount of joy. But there's also this teaching of hell in this chapter, which causes us to not get too comfortable and hopefully moves us to have compassion upon those that don't know Christ as our Savior. This is why Jesus, when he came, said, I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. 
He looked out at the multitudes and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He longed for them to know the Father, to know forgiveness, to, to have eternal life. There, there's something wrong in my heart and my attitude if it's like, hey, I know Jesus and I'm going to heaven, so, so I don't really care about the rest of y'all, right? Well, let's say for sake of example that I had stage four cancer and it was terminal and I found a cure and this cure was not well known. And I said, I- I'm gonna enjoy the cure but I'm not going to share this cure with anybody else that, that has cancer. You'd cry foul, right? If you're a sports fan, you'd be like throwing out the yellow flag. You can't do this. You, you, you need to share. And for us as believers, is we know the solution to our sin. It's Jesus. It's what he's done for us. We know that all will live for eternity. And we cry foul to say, man, what if I don't share? Oftentimes we think we've got to know more, do better, to be able to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But we're beggars that have found bread that get to share with other beggars where the source of the bread of life is. It's not that, hey, I've got everything figured out. It's, man, I, I'm a sinner. I'm still a sinner. I, I still need the, the grace and the forgiveness of God. We get the joy of being able to share that with other believers. So this morning, we're going to take communion uh, together. And one of the aspects of communion is that we take communion until he comes. We lift the communion cup in faith in knowing that Jesus is going to come. And as you take communion this morning is look forward to his coming. We also look back and remember his sacrifice. I think it's very applicable with what we read this morning. Man, I would be doomed to hell if it wasn't for what Christ has done. Jesus, thank you for paying the price for for my sin. Searching our hearts and confessing sin to the Lord. Not for salvation, but to be right with the Lord. We know this in family relationships. Sometimes we get sideways with each other and we got to make things right. Would you, would you forgive me? How much more so with the Lord? Lord, would you forgive me? I, I want to be in fellowship uh, with you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, would you consider this morning trusting him? And as we come to the communion table, be pastors and a ministry team available down here on the sides and just come down, let us know. I'd like to receive Christ as my savior. I'd like to trust him for salvation. For those of us joining us online, there's an opportunity in the chats, the comments to to indicate that decision to receive Christ as your savior. Please hear me on this. I can't emphasize this enough. Eternity is real. You have an expiration date stamped on the back of your head. You just don't know when it is. But there will be some of us this year in 2022 that are going to step into eternity. I see it every year as a pastor. You see it in your life as well. And are you prepared? Do you know that when you take your last breath here on earth, that you have everlasting life? Jesus loves you. And he said that as you believe in him, you will have everlasting life. That's a reservation that you want to be secure. And if you need to make that decision, man, make that decision this morning. Turn to Christ and trust him for salvation. 
Would you stand with me and let's pray together? Jesus, we thank you for dying for our sins. I think oftentimes we don't realize the the gravity of our sin, the, the weight of our sin, and also the magnificence of you coming in human flesh and being punished for, for our sins. But we're thankful and we're grateful. As we celebrate communion this morning, we remember you, Jesus. We make much of you. We need your sacrifice. And we lift this cup knowing, Jesus, that you're going to return. We're looking forward to you ruling and reigning on this earth. Our ultimate desire is for you to be in charge. Lord, for those that don't know you, we just pray that you would touch their hearts with your love, that this would become very clear, your death and resurrection for their sins. Give us a heart for the lost. Would you open up doors for us personally and as a church family to to share the gospel? Lord, would there be a gospel movement that would take place in this city, take place throughout the state, throughout the country? So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.